Imagine having a bra that you actually want to wear. And maybe this seems inconceivable if you don't already own a bra by today's sponsor, Honey Love, which has transformed the bra game. With Honey Love, say goodbye to underwire and bulky fabrics that trap heat. Honey Love is so comfortable, you may even forget that you're wearing it. Now is the time to spring clean your bra drawer. For a limited time only, you can get Honey Love on sale. Get 20% off your entire order with our exclusive link, honeylove.com slash birthful. Support our show and check them out at honeylove.com forward slash birthful. Now, currently, I have been very partial to my Honey Love Silhouette bra. It is super soft and it has these really lovely 3D printed velvet details that actually add support. And I can even crisscross the straps in the back. Also, like all of Honey Love's bras, it features supportive bonding that eliminates the need for underwire without sacrificing lift. I can tell you I'm never in a rush to take it off. Plus, Honey Love also has incredibly comfortable shapewear, matching underwear, tanks, and leggings for everyday support. Treat yourself to the best bras on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com birthful. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off at honeylove.com birthful. And after you purchase, they're going to ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them Birthful sent you. Treat yourself to honey love. I'm a huge fan of preparation and prevention, and one of the most impactful and immediate ways to influence maternal and infant health is through nourishing nutrition. But honestly, when was the last time any of your providers had a meaningful conversation with you about eating habits and prenatal supplements? Prioritizing nutrition can truly change perinatal health for the better, which is why when talking about prenatal supplements, I'm proud to partner with Needed. They've redesigned the prenatal vitamin from the ground up based on the latest clinical research and in-practice experience of testing thousands of pregnant people's nutrient levels to know what they actually needed, not just to meet some bare minimum needs. And what I always tell my clients is that even though they're called prenatal vitamins, you should continue to take supplements during postpartum and beyond because your body still needs so much nutritional support. I love that at Needed, they understand this and have different plans to make it easy for you to meet your optimal micronutrient, microbiome, and protein needs. They have a fertility support plan, a plan for each of the four trimesters, and a lactation support plan, just to name a few. Needed is recommended by nearly 4,000 doctors, midwives, doulas, and nutritionists, and is proud to be the first perinatal nutrition company that's B Corp and climate neutral certified. Head over to thisisneeded.com and use code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. (music) 
Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today's show is about protecting your perineum during birth. The thought of vaginal tearing can make any person cringe, and let's not even think about episiotomies. Are there ways to avoid tearing? What's the evidence behind perineal massage, kegels, and squats? Will being told how to push make things worse? Rachel Reed is here to tell us more. Stay tuned. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros and new parents to inform your intuition. Hello, Mighty Parents and Parents-to-be. Thanks again for all the love you give the show and for telling your friends about it and for sharing it with your clients if you're a doula and for putting it on your list of best podcasts to listen to if you're a blogger. All the things that are happening. I'm super excited. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. My guest for today's renewed episode is the fantastic Dr. Rachel Reed, who is a senior lecturer and discipline leader in midwifery at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Australia. She has provided midwifery care for hundreds of women in a range of settings in the UK and in Australia. And Rachel is a writer and presenter. She's also the author of the amazing blog Midwife Thinking at midwifethinking.com, which I recommend you add to your reading list. And... Rachel also has a freshly birthed new book called Why Induction Matters, which I cannot wait to read. Rachel and I first talked not that long after I started doing the podcast, and she shared such relevant information that I felt we needed to dust this one off because more people need to hear what she had to say. Um, I've updated the links on the show notes and made sure everything is going to the right place and even got a new updated photo for Rachel. So... There you go. All brand new. Okay, here we go. Rachel, welcome. So happy to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed listening to the podcast, so it's exciting to be invited on. Yay, and that's one of the things that makes me blush, that you even knew about the podcast before. <laughs> so yay. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, so today we're going to be talking about protecting the perineum. Perineum. And as a doula childbirth educator, I get a lot of questions about tears. You know, this is the thing that many moms think about. What if I tear? What if I need an episiotomy? So, and then they start thinking, what can I do to prevent that? And I get asked about perineal massage. And then there's the debate about Kegels and now Kegels versus squats and all of that. So let's break this down into steps. Um, and I was thinking we would first go with the captain, captain obvious and agree that the best way to protect your perineum is to steer clear of an episiotomy, right? <laughs> the evidence is pretty clear that routine episiotomies are unnecessary um, and that even ACOG has a recommendation against doing unnecessary and routine episiotomies but in your experience what would be a case when if any when an episiotomy is needed um, well i think i'm hoping that um the practice of episiotomy to protect the perineum has is outdated now i know it still happens in in some places but uh, doing an episiotomy is the biggest risk factor for a significant tear so most practitioners want to avoid that and won't do it. The only times that I, and I've only done three episiotomies in my entire career, um, and they have been for fetal distress. So a situation where this baby needs to come out now, and the only way to get it out is to do an episiotomy. Um, I have never done one for the perineum. I have spoken to midwives who talk about um, a situation called buttonholing, where the perineum can start to kind of, break down 
um, little holes appear. I have never seen this happen, so I, I feel I can't comment on that. But I know midwives have said in the, that circumstance they would do an episiotomy just to minimise the buttonholing and lots of lots of buttonhole tears and have one tear instead. So, but I can't comment on that because I've never seen that happen. Wow, and that's something I have never heard about. So, wow, I, I no, didn't even it's, know it's knew that was a thing. <laughs> No, it's obviously rare because I've never seen it and I've only heard about it a few times. Mm -hmm. So I think the first recommendation is to to the listeners out there to please ask their birth providers about their episiotomy rates and know that there's very clear evidence that that is something that should be extremely low if if done at all. So um, that's one obvious, you've got the research behind you that's one obvious way of trying to avoid um, instant, you know, predetermined tearing um, or lacerations, I guess, because it wouldn't be a tear, it would be cut. Um, well, now that that's out of the way, if you were to say, Rachel, that, you know, what would be the ideal condition of a perineum that what you would like to see in a perineum in birth so that it wouldn't tend to tear? Are we talking about a tone perineum, a tight perineum? Does it matter? What do you think? <laughs> um, well, every woman, we are designed to birth. Our perineal tissues are designed to stretch. They're actually designed to tear and to heal. So, But I know it's a huge fear for women. Um, there are factors antenatally that, that increase your chance of tearing. So obviously a bigger baby, there's a bigger amount of stretch that the perineum has to do during birth. And women who have gained a lot of weight in the pregnancy, um, and that's probably something to do with the tissues. Um, lower socioeconomic, um, sorry, higher socioeconomic groups, which is in, an interesting finding. I think that's linked to women who can afford private health care. <laughs> so mm. they're getting obstetricians who have much higher rates of episiotomy. Um, Smoking, anything that, if you think about it, the perineum is, is made up of tissue, which is part of the body. So anything that can improve the nutrition, so think zinc, vitamin C for skin, um, silica, vitamin K, anything that will um, provide good nutrition to those tissues will help to prepare them for birth. Um, there's perineal massage, for, and this is for women who are having their first baby, if they um, doing a perineal massage, or it's more strap. It's called massage, but it's actually more like stretching. It's not. It sounds very pleasant when you say massage, and it's not necessarily uh -huh. pleasant. Um, that's been found to reduce the chance of tearing for women having their first baby, and some women choose to do that. I, the women I care for, I offer that. I, I talk about it, but I don't feel they need to do it because the perineum, as you're getting up to birth, your You've got all these hormones that make it really soft and stretchy. You've got increased discharge, so that helps to stretch. It's all getting ready to stretch and birth the baby, so you don't really need to do anything. But if a woman feels like she wants to do something to build trust in her body, then perineal massage is an option. Um, there's YouTubes on how to do that. If you do, Penny Simpkin has a YouTube explaining how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an option. Um, I found... Tends to be women who are having V-backs actually, who find that really helpful because they can feel their tissue stretching and it just helps to build that trust because as, as the pregnancy moves on, they can feel more stretched during their massage and that, that can help confidence. So that's, that's an option in 
pregnancy. Okay. Yes. So, yeah. So if it's something that they, but if if they're not feeling it and not, not thinking, you know, if it starts becoming like a chore and it's not helping their confidence, would you say don't bother with it or? Yeah. And I, I, I don't care really whether women do it or not. It does. I don't think it makes that much of a, a difference during the birth because you think about this research when they do research and um, you've got to look at the populations they're researching on and they're probably researching on populations of women who are birthing in mixed contexts with mixed practitioners with all kinds of other risk factors thrown in for tearing during the birth process and um, which the women I'm working with aren't necessarily going to be having so and I've also found you know women don't tear and They've done no perineal massage, and some women have done perineal massage and torn. It really is up to the woman. It's mm -hmm. it's definitely not a must-do. It's an option. Um, and I, I would warn against the epino. So there's now devices that are designed to stretch the perineum antenatally. I was just going to ask you about that. If we could talk for a moment about the epino childbirth and pelvic floor trainer. Yes. <laughs> And, and I guess my biggest um, concern about the epinos is once again, kind of giving women the message that they are not enough, that they have to do something in order to prepare for something, which is actually a physiological process that doesn't need preparation. Your body knows how to prepare without having to buy a product to do it. And the epino will work in the same way the massage will work, as it, it will stretch the perineal tissues, and for women having their first baby, it'll reduce the chance of tearing slightly. However, with the epino, um, it, because it actually, it actually goes into the vagina and, and opens up to almost the size of a head of a baby by the time you've kind of trained your perineum to do this, there is no long-term research on what that does to the muscles in the pelvis. Um, yes, it probably does reduce tearing because by the time you give birth, you've essentially given birth numerous times and your pelvic floor's being stretched. Um, but we don't have any really good research about long-term outcomes. There have also been injuries, women tearing themselves using the device. Oh, goodness. Um, okay. Yeah. So Queensland Health, um, if anybody's interested in kind of looking at a, a hospital's um, kind of focus on it, Queensland Health have just done some guidelines. And if you do Queensland Health Maternity Guidelines, they'll come up about perineums, and they actually warn against epinos, um, saying you know, that there's, there's concerns about the tearing yourself and that they they shouldn't be recommended yeah so because from what i understood when i looked at um at the the website it did it has you insert this into your vagina and slowly you know sort of pump it so that it gets bigger and and they mentioned something like in three weeks you will get to be able to have that idealized 10 centimeters which is presumably the size of a baby's head and <laughs> that 10 centimeters really um and thinking of you i read through your blog as well and you were saying you're concerned about you know constantly stretching to that size over and over again like you said you you're not your perineum is not really supposed to be doing that that often no, if you give birth to multiple babies, you usually have a space between them. You're not kind of birthing three babies in one week, which is potentially what you're doing, what you're mimicking with this device. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. But I know, I, having said that, I have actually looked after a woman who used it 
and found it really helpful and was you know, very happy with it. And I know that a lot of women do use it and feel that it, it works for them. It's something they can focus on and they're the kind of women who like to have gadgets and like to, and that it works. But it's not something I would recommend, but at the same time, if women feel that that's useful for them. And make their informed choices and decide on yeah. it. Yeah, and if it, if it gives her them confidence, for sure. Um, have you found, as a side note, that then they need more sort of recovery PT or can they use this or a different gadget to tone back or strengthen their perineum again? I'm, I'm assuming that it stretches it um, more than usual. It's des- it is designed to then be used as a tool to um, get toned back into the pelvic floor. The woman, I've only looked after one woman who used it um, that I know of mm-hmm. um, and she had an intact perineum. Um, but then she also had a birth that probably would have resulted in an intact perineum anyway. Um, and she didn't notice anything postnatally. You know, nothing came up. But okay. was... So it worked for her? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, we will, I will step back. I, I feel bad laughing about it, but just the... No, I laugh about it. <laughs> I laugh about we it. We apologize it. for laughing. <laughs> but really, it's doing the same thing as perineal massage. So... Mm-hmm. You can not buy the product and save some money and do perineal massage if that's something that you're wanting to do. And those guidelines I mentioned actually um, talk about when to do it 35 weeks and how often to do it three times a fortnight. So it it gives a bit of a guide as to if you're going to do it, how to do it. Have you seen any research or any um, evidence for, say, using something like coconut oil or instead of a perineal massage, just the application to keep the skin more subtle, does that make any difference? Um, there hasn't been any research on that. Um, and again, the, the body produces lots of food at the end of pregnancy. Has um, anyone who's been pregnant noticed? It's quite juicy and stretchy down there anyway. I don't think we need to add additional oils. Mm-hmm. But again, if that's something women want to do as part of their preparation and building self-trust and coconut oil will be a nice one to use okay let's take a quick break and we'll be right back and talk about you know what to do for labor we'll be right back did you know that americans spend an average of 90 percent of their time indoors and take about twenty thousand breaths per day That is so many breaths. Now, according to the EPA, the indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some cases, up to a hundred times more polluted. So then what is the solution for cleaner indoor air? For me, it's Air Doctor and their line of superb air purifiers that have captured the attention of established media outlets such as CNN, Money, ABC, and many more. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so that your lungs don't have to. This includes all kinds of pollutants, such as allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses that can make you sick. Plus, Air Doctor comes with a 30-day breathe-easy money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code BIRTHFALL to receive up to $300 off air purifiers. 
And exclusive to podcast listeners, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com, so airdoctorpro.com, and use the promo code BIRTHFUL. And we're back talking with Rachel Reed about protecting your perineum. So then let's get to women are in their late pregnancy, nice and juicy and stretchy, and then labor starts during birth. What are mm-hmm. the things that they can, let's start first with the risk that would risk, that would increase the risk of tearing. So the things that increase the chances of tearing is probably no surprise. Um, uh, Induction of labor, so using a syntocin on infusion, especially for women who have previously had babies, increases the chance of tearing. If you know, really, the baby needs to be born slowly, and the tissues need to have time to stretch. So anything that interferes with that, so syntocin can push that baby through too quickly before the tissues have stretched, mm-hmm. um, and okay. so can directed pushing. So women being told to hold their breath and push that increases the chance of tearing. Um, people, episiotomy obviously we've talked about, people pulling babies. So when the baby's head's out, um, practitioners will often then grasp the baby's head and pull the baby's shoulder into the posterior wall of the vagina as they pull the baby out, um, which can tear the posterior wall of the vagina. Um, positions, so the position, any position that increases the tension in the, pel- in the pelvic floor and the perineum. So squatting, lithotomy, um, I kind of describe it as anything that the pe- when the perineum needs a bit of bagginess in it mm-hmm. <laughs> to stretch, and if you kind of tighten it by opening your legs really wide, um, then that can increase the chance of tearing because the pressure of the baby's head coming through that really stretched tissue is more likely to tear. Um, and hands-on. So for a long time, I've had practitioners, and um, I was taught... <laughs> I dread to think what I did to women. Um, the way that I was taught to manage a birth, and it very much was managed in quotes, was direct the woman pushing. So she'd be told how to push because I couldn't possibly trust her to push a baby out herself. And then I would be putting my hand on her perineum, um, thinking that that was actually protecting the perineum. And then I'd put my hand on the baby's head as it came out to slow down the birth and again protect the perineum and then pull the baby out and this is what I was taught what you needed to do to protect a perineum and that's still um, common practice and midwives who are used to doing that are frightened not to do it often when I talk to them about well you know the research actually shows that increases the chance of perineal trauma and pain they can't get there was one small study that wasn't very well done and has been critiqued um, I think it was the 80s that showed that hands on versus just hands off and letting the baby birth didn't do anything in terms of reducing the chance of tearing but women on day 10 reported more pain on a pain scale um, perineal pain if the midwife had not had her hands on so from that we've created this culture you have to be hands on because it'll reduce tearing which is never what that is not what the research said and then since then we have got good research saying no hands on can increase the chance of tearing and can increase the chance of hemorrhage after the birth. Hmm. So, um, and I see enough. it. I see it all the time. I I do. I mean, except for I guess in home births, um, 
in a hospital setting, there is an immediate of trying to stretch like perineal massage as the baby is crowning and with lube or with um, like a soapy substance as well. Um, you know, and all these things that you described of managing that that exit of the baby, putting the hands on it. Like I, I see so much of it. It's, yeah, it's, it's, still, it's still common practice. There are a, a lot of midwives in hospitals not doing it. I mean, I, I um, teach students, so I get to find out what's going on mm-hmm. <laughs> in their placement areas. And most midwives and, and obstetricians are still doing that hands-on that you've seen. We don't, in Australia, it's not perineal massaging while the baby's being born. That's not, I don't think that's ever been a, a thing. Um, but there are practitioners doing hands-off. And it's... And what women need to remember is practitioners are humans and they have fear and concern and from their perspective, they're thinking, if I don't do this and this woman tears, then that's my fault. And and often the perineum, and I wrote that in my blog post, is almost like a badge of honour to the practitioner. So, you know, you'll hear midwives saying, oh, and she had an eight-pound baby and her perineum was intact. And other midwives will say, well done to the midwife. You know, as if the midwife had anything to do with the woman's <laughs> perineum. And, you know, if then a woman has a significant tear, you know, there's all this, oh, what midwife did, did she protect the perineum? And, and, you know, I've had students involved where women have had um, third-degree tears. So you've got first and second. First-degree tear is just the mucosa. Second-degree tear is involving the muscle. Third-degree tear is very deep muscle and some of the um, sphincter t- um they call the parts of the sphincter, the what are they called? Fibers, that's it. Um, and then a fourth degree tear actually goes into the anal sphincter. So I've had student midwives be involved in third degree tears and then be devastated because they've been questioned as to what they did with their hands when the baby was being born and how they stopped the tear. Why didn't they stop the tear? When there is enough research now for us to know that nothing that, mid- that we do with our hands during the birth is going to reduce the chance of this woman tearing. In fact, it might increase the chance. So if we're putting things onto the perineum like ointments or whatever you were talking about, we're one, disrupting the microbiome of the vagina, mm-hmm. which is, and I've listened to the podcast, uh, it was great. The vaginal um, discharge at that point is, is primed, ready, with all this beautiful microbiome and all this bacteria ready for the baby. And you, you're interfering with that. You're putting chemicals on that can interfere with that. Um, and you're... You, Pressing on the tissues, you can create edema in the tissues, which will increase the chance of tearing. Um, yeah, it's just it's a cultural thing, and most practices that care providers do are cultural and they're not evidence based. And it's and it's then very difficult to shift that because of the beliefs that are behind the practices that they're doing. And I was there; I was terrified to not put my hands on, and I had to slowly just back off. So, and what made you? start to take your hands off and 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 change your perspective uh, it was mostly what the hospital i was working in when i was a new, newly qualified student um and newly qualified midwife was implementing water birth and as part of the, and actually water birth reduces the chance of tearing um and as part of that we were told you mustn't touch the baby as it comes out you mustn't touch the woman you just don't touch and that was such a huge, what? How can we not touch? It's, it's going to be awful. Things are going to happen. You mm-hmm. know, cords are going to around babies' necks. Women's perineums are going to explode. And that didn't happen. These babies came out and it's like, oh. So then I just started to think, well, if that's the case in water, then why is it different outside of water? 
And then I kind of looked at all the research that was already saying you're not protecting the perineum, even though you might feel you are. And I just I just stopped one thing at a time. So I took my head hands off the baby's head for a few births and then took my hands off the perineum for a few births and then stopped pulling the baby out. And it took me about six months to work backwards from fiddling on during birth and interfering to doing nothing unless needed. And then you start to learn when you do need to do things because you, your default is not doing it. So you see physiology and then you can recognize pathology. And for a woman, for example, who's had an epidural, then you do need to maybe put your hand on the baby's head if the baby's birthing very quickly because she's not getting that feedback from her body to slow the birth down herself. So you learn that. And you also get to watch women birthing instinctively and realize that they're actually protecting their perineums. They're doing all the things that reduce the chance of tearing if you just shut up and <laughs> leave them alone. Um, you know, they'll, they'll be pushing, and then as that baby's head starts to stretch their perineum, and what I've noticed actually is women tend to, they might get into a squat for pushing, some will, but once that baby's head gets really to the point of stretching, they'll often move into an all four position. They will close their legs because it's stretching and it's uncomfortable. Anyone who's had that sensation, it's not something that you kind of, it's not something that you want to push and make stronger. So women try and stop the birth almost. They'll close their legs. They'll stop adding weight to their pushing. They'll kind of go, and they'll even like say, ow, 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 ow. And and some will even try and push their babies back in. Mm -hmm. I've had um, one of my friends recently, well, a few years back did that at her. Birthing, I said, oh, I didn't want to push the baby back in. I said, well, good luck. You do that. <laughs> um, so women will do all of these things that essentially are protecting their perineums. Um, and yet as midwives or the care practitioners, we're then working against that by saying, open your legs, give the baby lots of room, you know, take your hands away, let me put my hands there. Um, so I started to realize that actually women have got it sorted themselves if they're birthing instinctively and they're not being um, told what to do and we're not doing things to them and they're in that real zone where they're tuned into what's happening with their baby and their body and, and not having to focus on what's going on in the room around them. Mm -hmm. Well and the tough part also is that independently of, of whether the care provider is managing the birth of the baby, the exit of, of the baby, um, Usually, and and depends on the practice, of course. But I, there's a lot of directed pushing, and there's a lot of it's, it's such a precise script. And I don't I don't know how it is in a, in Australia, but here, I mean, I can recite the script specifically of you know grab behind your knees and bring them up to your ears and tuck your chin and curl around your baby and hold your breath and count to ten and give it all you've got. And there's a time you know it's like there's a rush to get this baby out as soon as possible and this mom just needs to really give it her all and be exhausted um or else so if she's doing those things also she's not feeling in tune with the process itself and 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 kind of you get a i am it, it feels like you're getting a self-fulfilling prophecy circle of you push this way, so I have to manage it, to manage it, so you push this way, and so forth. It is, and then you, you're actually creating all these conditions that increase the chance of tearing. A woman on her back, a woman with her legs wide open, 
directed pushing right down and it's you know, down into your bottom exactly mm-hmm. where all that pressure is her pelvis i mean the, the pelvis can't move to open up when she's sat on her sacrum on it or lying on her back so you yeah you're creating these conditions that will then increase the chance of tearing so then that reinforces the practitioner oh birth equals tearing and you know we need to manage it um and there's the, i think it's really interesting risk management because we've there's this whole risk management culture in institutions and it's all focused around you need to, as a practitioner, do all of these things to manage this the risk and the risk is the woman and the baby when actually it's the other way around that a lot of the things we are doing are the risks and you know, the woman and the, just recognising and, and respecting and facilitating physiology is risk management because you're going to improve the outcomes by doing that. And I don't know how you, that's my mission, but I don't know how you get that across to, to people who are so caught up in this. If we don't do it this way, something awful will happen. And they've never seen anything. I mean, so some obstetricians have never seen a physiological birth. Mm-hmm. Some midwives have never seen a physiological birth. So working with students who are mostly placed in hospital settings, you know, I use a lot of their movies from, home birth and unassisted birth even because it's sometimes even in home birth there's a lot of fiddling happening and they're watching it and they'll say to me you'll be coming up to almost qualification and that well I've never actually seen physiological birth from the beginning to the end I haven't seen that and that's just that's really sad because then how can they if they don't experience it how can they build trust in that process and support it well absolutely and we're going to take another quick break but when we come back let's talk about how how do we support that process in a system that isn't used to supporting it? We'll be right back. Hey, Mighty One, as you approach the journey into birth and parenthood, now is the perfect time to make your home a serene and nurturing haven with the help of Home Threads. At Home Threads, you'll discover furniture designed for comfort and functionality, from cozy nursing chairs to versatile baby-friendly storage, as well as a super wide array of options to spruce up any room in your house. Home Threads can help make your home the perfect nest for your growing family and at a great value. I so appreciate that wide range of styles that you can find at Home Threads. For example, I was ecstatic when I found a pair of truly stunning mid-century curved walnut dining chairs that somehow perfectly match my home office chair. I mean, what are the chances? These chairs are not only gorgeous in their light green upholstery, but also super sturdy and just so comfortable. I simply adore them. Explore the amazing finds Home Threads has waiting for you. Go to homethreads.com slash birthful and get a code for 15% off your first order. Do make sure to go to our unique URL of homethreads.com slash birthful to get your discount. Home Threads, love where you live. And we are back talking about protecting your perineum with Rachel Reed. So, Rachel, knowing all these things, then how do we help the person giving birth to be able to have less of a tear and be able to push on her own within a system that is not quite trusting the hands-off 
process and that is used to having, you know, a 60% epidural rate. So 60% of the time they're dealing with moms who can't quite feel things all properly and are on, on their back or on their side and are being directed to push. So how can a mom, is it through birth plan? Is it... Do you have any suggestions for them in terms of how to get more of a physiological um, pushing? Uh, yeah, it needs to come from the mothers. It needs to come from the, the consumers, I guess, is what what, um, what the hospitals and practitioners would will call them. So uh, I'm not. You know, I know a little bit about the American system. It's we've got a private, we've got public and private um, system here. So we've kind of got women in both both um, birthing scenarios um, and it, it's a little bit more difficult with private obstetrics because you're employing that obstetrician and often they have their own set of how they do things and how they like things so it's a good idea to find that out before you engage them as your care provider if you can ask them as you were saying what are you what's your episiotomy rate what's your um, philosophy around birth what's your normal practice for a during birth how many of your women have epidurals um, it's a little bit easier here in the public system because you haven't got a specific obstetrician. You're looked after mostly by midwives. and You've just got to battle hospital policies. But ultimately, nobody can do anything to you without your consent. So the consumer has a lot of power within those systems. They just don't know they have. Um, and I would say for women who are birthing in an institution where they might not know who's going to be caring for them during labour or their care provider may not um, be experienced with physiological birth, is to have a really strong birth plan and preferably have somebody like a doula who can advocate for you while you're in labour. Because you can't do... When you're in labour, you need to be in that labour zone. You need to have your neocortex switched off. You can't be engaging in discussions about why it is that you don't want to be directed to push. Um, but if you've got a, a birth plan... And I know women have successfully done that in, in hospitals here in Australia. It was things like, um, I, I, I do not want anybody to provide directions or talk whilst I'm pushing my baby out. Um, I you know, would like to take up a position that is comfortable for me during my labour and birth. Um, and just really get it written down and have somebody who's at your birth who knows what you want, who can actually advocate for you and just remind care providers if they start directing oh um you know on a birth plan she wants she would like us to be quiet during this point or mm -hmm. and it's i i find that so we've kind of moved on past the episiotomy thing like it is very it is rare when it is done and and numbers have decreased incredibly and it's surprising when somebody has it as a routine anymore which is a good thing but mm. moms are still off the bat, you know, sort of afraid of that, which there's, it makes sense <laughs> that you would be afraid of somebody cutting your vagina, <laughs> your perineum. So, um, and uh, going through birth plans and, and if they go to their care provider, go, they will probably say, oh no, we don't do episiotomies anymore. So maybe we need to get past that and go like, okay, we've, we've sort of, we're done with that point that's become mainstream then move to like you're suggesting the, the everybody be quiet or be because i find that even if a mom puts in her birth plan i would like to push in any position that is comfortable to me 
at that point, she does get sort of led to be in a reclining position or on a side position, definitely on the bed, um, even if she's doing hands and knees. And it, like you said, at that point, she should be just in labor. She shouldn't be trying to discuss a situation with anybody and even having an advocate in a partner or in a doula that will say these were her birth wishes you can't you can say that but ultimately the mom is the one that has to say yes that's what i wanted <laughs> i will do this again or because sometimes they're so into it that they go oh no this is fine and and yeah. that's as much as you can do you know yeah and, and it is really um, the research is that women even when they have done childbirth education and prepared and decided that this is how their birth is going to be, that the environment they then birth in can completely shift and shape that as a lot of women have experienced, you know, going with these wishes and then, you know, that for example, don't cut the baby's cord and then, oh, the baby had to have the cord cut because it was needed to be resuscitated. There's a reason behind it. So, you know, the episiotomy, well, we had to because of whatever. So I think it's easier to, write down what you do want and kind of give the care provider, not a huge, they won't read, you know, pages and pages. Oh, no. Um, but just a, this is kind of setting the scene that I don't want people in the room um, that before I've been asked if they can come in the room, you know, that I, that I would like to birth on the floor maybe. That's a way of getting off the bed <laughs> and making it. What I found when I worked in a hospital, what I found really helpful was, to shift that out of the way and I just spread all my notes across the bed. So that was my space for writing things. <laughs> um, and then put a crash mat on the floor and a bean bag and set up a nest so that the woman would then either be in the toilet or the shower or in this nest. Mm -hmm. And then that's where birth happened and we had a soft surface. In. And then if anybody else needed to come in and there was anything else going on, then we've already established this is where it's happening. And I can remember an obstetrician who didn't speak to me for two weeks because the obstetrician wanted to do a vagina examination and I wouldn't do one um, and came in and asked the woman and of course women will agree <laughs> so the woman agreed and then I said then uh, then the obstetrician I then said to the obstetrician okay well you can do it here because the woman was on the floor and the obstetrician just looked at me I can't do it there she needs to get on the bed and I said well you can do a vagina examination on the floor it's just the same um, and I said, do you want me to do the vaginal examination? Because I can do a vaginal examination on the floor. And this obstetrician was furious, got on the floor, did the vaginal examination, <laughs> went out of the room. The woman burst very shortly after that, as I knew she would, but was so annoyed that I'd assumed that this obstetrician could get on the floor to do a vaginal examination. But you can, there's nothing, you can't, you can get on the floor and do things around a woman birthing if you need to. But we've got this cultural norm of putting women on beds, which is such an unnatural place to birth. You mm -hmm. need Women seek the ground and want to be grounded and, and to put a woman even on all fours, which is a you know, good position anatomically, you know, physiologically for birth, it's put it up high. I actually make students get on the bed and pump it up and tell them to get on all fours and say, how, how do you feel? And they often feel really vulnerable and insecure because they're up on a height, you know, birthing. It's Yeah. That, and that's the tough thing because you go into a hospital room and the the center of it is the bed. You know that mm -hmm. it's a hospital. Hospitals have beds, and that's what is there. So it's really hard to not just 
gravitate towards it um, and make sure that everybody gets there really quick. And yeah. So, okay. So let's go into the things that do help decrease the risk of tearing so that these can go into that birth plan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that we were talking about. So really avoiding interventions that increase the chance, things like um, syntoxanon for women who've previously had babies, not so much for women having their first babies, um, but all, but syntoxanon interferes with the physiology anyway, so it'll interfere with the instinct of birthing response of the woman. And I want to um, just, just mm-hmm. interrupt for a second and that, say that syntoxanon is the same thing as Pitocin, which is oh. how we know it more but just it's you know um um, what is it chemical no the uh, it's not non-naturally occurring oxytocin (laughs) yes the synthetic version of oxytocin which is actually the molecules are exactly the same but it functions very differently because it it isn't released from the brain and there isn't that feedback um that you would get with physiological naturally occurring oxytocin so yeah so um, avoiding that, um, avoiding directed pushing, avoiding any disturbance of the instinctive process during birth. So it's probably easier just to say to practitioners, I don't want anybody to speak unless I unless I ask a question during my pushing. And that gets away from the, you know, I don't want you to be directed. Or, or say I want silence during my pushing. So say what you want rather than what you don't want, perhaps mm-hmm. will work better. So nobody kind of directing or telling the woman what to do. They're just tuned in and following. Um, not to be in a lithotomy. Um, now we, I don't know Which is got, lying on your back or reclining? Not lying on your back with your legs in those poles. That's the worst position for a tear. Um, also, forceps will probably require, usually require an episiotomy in order to get the instruments in. And a von Tuss, they often do that without an episiotomy now, but that can still increase the chance of tearing because of the downward pressure of the, the way in which they pull. Depends how good the practitioner is, it is at how they use them um, in terms of tearing. Um, yep, yeah, so avoid squatting as the baby's born. So it's a great position to get the baby deep into the pelvis, but once the baby's head's starting to crown, to shift position. And women usually instinctively do that, but for people who are around women, if you've got a woman onto a squatting chair. I don't know whether you've got those in America. We've got these little squatting um, stools. We don't. So we have them often in the birth rooms and women will be encouraged to sit on those to bring the babies down, but then they need to be encouraged to get off them. If you've encouraged them to get on, Mm -hmm. you now need to encourage the woman to get off. So just for the woman to to not be in that deep squat as the baby's head's crowning. Um, And anything, you know, if she wants to draw her knees in, that's fine. So just listen to her body and to, to not feel that she is as rushed to get the baby out. The, the slow birth of the head, we know, reduces the chance of tearing. So that, And it can be really frustrating for women to feel the baby's head moving down and then moving up and moving down and moving up. And just to remember that's part of the process that is protecting the perineum and just let that happen. Just let the baby slowly move down and stretch those tissues slowly. Um, what else for... Water, water birth increases the chance of an intact perineum and warm compresses as well. So um, not too hot, just kind of warm, like bath warm compresses just held against the perineum. And that often, as the baby's head's crowning, and women often really like that 
because at that point it's really intense and it can kind of feel that support of the compress and the warmth. Other women just get off. So the mm-hmm. woman needs to know that if <laughs> if she pushes that away, that's fine. She doesn't have to have it. But that can be offered at that point. So she could have that on the birth plan. Um, and that's it really. Just try and be undisturbed and tuned in because your body is is designed to birth and to protect the perineum. And the, the chances are two-thirds of women will have some kind of perineal damage. It's actually normal. And it and the, the perineum, so the, the vaginal wall is a, is mucosal and heals like the inside of your mouth. You know, if you cut the inside of your mouth, it heals very quickly. Um, and perineum heals very quickly. And I guess that's another thing to consider is, is if you do have a tear, do you get it sutured? Do you leave it? Um, right, because it is very common to tear. It's not like you're saying, it's, you know, your body heals quickly. So it's not something to be, you know, you can be a little bummed about it, but not incredibly super sad about it because your body will heal. What I find more annoying and disturbing of the process is, you know, you might have a mom that did pushing, push, beautiful baby came out. Um, and then ends up that because the baby came out so quick, um, she might have spent an hour being quote unquote repaired, you know, sutured back. And I understand that the baby probably flying out had something to do with the need for a lengthy repair, but it can disturb the process of this beautiful labor that was going great, you know, baby's out and then suddenly she's up with her legs on the stirrups and people in her crotch sewing and sewing and sewing and and painfully so uncomfortably so yeah and it's and it's that those first moments with the baby the first hour is really important mm-hmm. and we need to respect that and if a woman's not bleeding from her tear it can wait there's no massive urgency to repair a perineum a woman can spend time with the baby before that then has to happen Um, and also there's a lot of it tends to be standard practice or policy in most hospital settings that any second degree tear so that's any tear that goes into the muscle layer needs to be sutured however there's now good evidence there's actually a Cochrane review that looked at the research and came up with a summary of of findings to say that that's not there's, there's not evidence to support in terms of a second degree tear, there's insufficient evidence to say that you should suture or to say that you shouldn't suture. Hmm. And what they found was that you will have slower healing. Um, so if you don't suture, you'll have slower healing, but by about six weeks, there isn't a difference. And that there's possible better overall feeling of well-being if left unsutured. And that's certainly what I found um, in the UK when we did um, team midwifery for women who were birthing wherever we just went with them and um, in hospital home cesarean section um, and that's where my practices changed around suturing and then this Cochrane review came out and just confirmed what I've been seeing which was that women who I cared for who knew me a bit better because we'd had continuity care rather than just look I looked after them for their labor would be more likely to say I don't want to be sutured and I'd be like, oh, okay. And then I realized that those women's perineums were healing probably better than the perineums that were being sutured. So I just started to think about, well, why are we suturing if if perhaps the outcomes are as good, if not better, if we don't suture? So the, the important thing for a wound to heal is that it's well aligned. 
so the edges fit together and that there isn't bleeding. And if those two things are present, and most um, perineal tears will sit nicely together when the woman's legs are together, and she's not going to be walking around with her legs wide open after giving birth. She's going to be sitting. She's going to be doing a lot of spending time with her legs quite. Yes. Some women want to sit cross-legged immediately after giving birth for them. So her wound will heal and only needs to be together for 24, 48 hours and then the healing, the healing process is started. So we need to be having more discussions with women about this is what your tear is like. Um, what do you want me to do? It's, it's sitting together nicely. It's not bleeding. We could suture it, which would mean it'll heal quicker. But every what you've got to consider is when you're suturing, every hole that you make to put that needle in is another bit of trauma and you've now got suture equipment in there you've got suture material in there that can irritate um, the number of times I've had to be called out to a woman's home just to cut the knot because it was irritating her perineum as it was healing um, so you, really suturing is more trauma so you've really got to consider whether you need to do that does is it bleeding does this do you need to bring it together to stop the bleeding or do you need to line it up because it's actually not well lined up um, and I'm talking about second degree tears here because significant tears, you know, third degree, fourth degree, really do need to be sutured. They need to be sutured in theatre by somebody who's very experienced and with good lighting and because that's a, a real medical complication. But a second degree tear is not a medical complication. It's a very normal outcome from birth. And most of the perineums heal beautifully. And within you know, a few days, I've got a lovely photograph from one of my clients. Um, <laughs> she took a picture. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I took a picture okay. because I was, I was trying to explain to her to make a decision about suturing, and obviously she couldn't see. And I right, look, just give me a camera. Took a photograph so she could see, and she chose not to suture. Um, and then she took a photograph for me a few days later when she was in the bath <laughs> to show me how well everything was healed. And it was it's amazing. That's fantastic. You have a before and after. I have a before and after. And she kindly said, yes, you can use it for teaching because I'm sure nobody can recognize me from that. <laughs> so, so that is an option. So women don't have to agree to being sutured. They can ask their practitioner, what kind of tear is it? Yeah. Is it sitting together? Is it bleeding? Can I leave it? Can I wait for an hour? Can you reassess in an hour? Um, and just take a bit of... There are other methods of, I know um, a lot of the lay midwives here will use Manuka honey just to stick the edges together. And Manuka honey's got really good healing properties anyway and is used for, in wounds in hospitals and in dressings. So that's another option. And some, some midwives use seaweed. Um, seaweed's quite sticky just to stick the edges together and to aid healing. So there are other ways of bringing those two edges together. Um, what I often find with the, if there is, um, most women I look after will have some trauma even if it's just grazes or a or, um, small tear uh -huh. but uh, what's very common is because women birth leaning forward because that works so well and that's often instinctively where they find themselves that their tears um, I don't see a lot of um, vaginal wall tearing because the pressure is at the front of the vagina so it goes up the labia so you'll sometimes get labial grazes or tears in the labia which again heal well, um, but the woman needs to be careful if she has got labial tears on both sides to make sure that she, in the first 48 hours, keeps opening them so they don't fuse together. Right. Um, yeah, very important. <laughs> you do not want it to stick together. No, you don't want them to heal together. That's Close not up. good. No, no.
and it has happened to some women. So just to be mindful, and when you go to the to the loo, it's going to sting because of where yeah. the tears are. And to use, you know, warm jug of water, pour it over yourself while you pass urine. Keep yourself hydrated so your urine's not concentrated. All those, all those things. So, so yes, and suturing is often really traumatic for the women, as you say. They've just had this baby. They've usually had a lovely normal birth, and they're wanting to get to know the baby, and they end up in lithotomy with somebody, you know, suturing them for hours. Yeah, and it's not, it's a different kind of pain and sensation because everything's very soul and a baby just came out through there. Mm. And it's different from contractions in that there's not this rhythmic surge that comes and goes and that you're into and it, you know, has that rhythm, but it's mm. a sudden sharp prick at some point, be it the needle or as the uh, Novocaine, the numbing medicine wears off or depending on where it was, like it can be very jarring. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, and I also really appreciate you explaining the differences, what it means on first degree, second degree, third degree, fourth degree, because it's off the bat, you would think that that has to do with the length of the tear and it doesn't have to do anything with the length of the tear, but the depth of it, how deep it goes into the tissues. Yes. Yeah. And also you'll hear, you know, women be told oh I had to have 74 stitches <laughs> it's usually continuous so it's just one one long suture that is used and we're getting a bit well we're getting a bit better in terms of putting less sutures in and not stitching the skin because that's the most painful bit and that's where the um is unnecessary if you bring the the edges together on the inside the muscle together then everything else will sit together and heal so you don't need to do the skin so that's another option if women want to be sutured they could ask their care provider can you please not suture the skin layer um because that's the most painful and unnecessary and the evidence is they shouldn't be suturing it um and just to note on if a woman does have a really significant tear third degree or fourth degree when she comes to birth again i mean she's going to have a lot of fear around that is it going to happen again? And sometimes they're persuaded to then choose a cesarean section as an option for the next birth. The, um, the best bit of research on this um, was Australian, so it's looking at um, the westernised birth system, I guess. And for women who had had significant tear, which was a third or fourth degree tear, there wasn't an increased risk that their next birth they would have another significant tear. So... I guess that's an important thing for women to consider for their next birth, that they're not then likely to have that happen again, to have a very significant tear. What I have found is women who've previously had third or fourth degree tears will sometimes have a very small tear along the scar tissue. So like a first degree tear just into that scar tissue. And they might find that in pregnancy, massaging that scar tissue helps to loosen it and, and give a little bit more stretch in that area. Yeah, and that makes sense because the scar tissue is not as stretchy as everything else around it. Mm, yeah. So it and I have, I have actually come across women who have, after the birth, um, said that the baby actually improved their perineum because they had a, a very tight little bit of tissue at the bottom of their vagina that was, whether it was left, um, left over from the hymen, I'm not sure, because I didn't have a good look beforehand. Mm -hmm. um, but the baby actually released that and then subsequently they found that sex was less painful and that so interesting sometimes positives 
the topography does change. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it definitely does. <laughs> yeah. Rachel, finally to close, are there any, um, and then this is a little bit more outside of what we were talking, but um, tips for healing into the postpartum, not so much of exercises and, and, and Kegels and all that, or, or how to tone the perineum, but if they do have a tear, um, for that tear to heal better, do you have any any suggestions? Uh, well, the body's pretty good at healing itself if, if you have good nutrition and rest and all that, that kind of thing. Arnica's really good initially for bruising and swelling. Um, cold packs can help in the first few hours. I would stop within the first 12 hours using cool packs because you actually want, because they, they reduce the blood flow to that area and you actually want blood flow there to help with healing. So that can help with, with pain relief earlier on. Um, using a water jug so you're not getting urine in, on when you have a wee on, on the tear or having a wee in the shower or wherever you can dilute it. Mm -hmm. um, and it should be, it should start to feel better. It should be getting a little bit better every day. So just to keep an eye on, is it, is it feeling a little bit better today than it did yesterday? Um, and to look out for infection. So if it's starting to feel a bit more painful, if you're starting to feel a bit fluey or that area is kind of smelling or not feeling right, then get that looked at but generally healing the perineum heals really really well and quite quickly so within six weeks you know even with sutures you've got it's pretty much you can hardly see where where the tear was beautiful very good rachel thank you so so much for being here on the show it's been a lovely talking to you thank you for having me oh before i'm sorry i almost forgot if people want to know <laughs> more about you and follow what you're doing my goodness how can they stay in touch and contact you oh um probably through midwife thinking blog post and facebook page um and that's all really perfect um, hmm. Mighty Ones, find the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com where you can also learn more about me the show send me messages and much more this episode was produced by me and made possible by you the title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to a mighty parent as they share their amazing story here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so very much for listening. Mm -hmm.